Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Teamwork, patient safety, preventable harm, systems approaches to healthcare delivery. These are terms that are familiar to healthcare professionals, risk management and patient safety experts and educators in the continuing education field. Today, my guest is Steve Powell, CEO and founder of Sinensis Global and a recognised leader in patient safety management and performance improvement in healthcare. Steve has led programmes in the US military health system, the Veterans Administration and the Centres for Medicare and Medicaid for more than 30 years. He's passionate about patient safety, quality control, and patient-centered care improvements. Today, Steve shares what he learned about safety when he was a U.S. Navy pilot and how he's drawn on these experiences as a leader in the healthcare industry. He shares his expertise on what makes a team successful when it comes to patient handoffs and talks about key principles associated with a high-reliability organization. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Welcome to Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to the Right Medicine podcast. This is your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today with Steve Powell, the Chief Executive Officer of Sinensis, a safety and management and performance improvement organization that uses a systems approach to address safety and quality in healthcare. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Alex. Glad to be here. It's great to talk to you today. You and I have had many conversations, and I always really enjoy spending time with you. So I'm excited to learn a bit more about the work that you're doing today. And I think listeners of the podcast are going to be really excited about some of the things that you have to say. Let's just start with who you are. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you found your way into safety management and performance improvement in healthcare. Great. Uh, Well, thank you. Uh, Thanks again for having me. I'm really uh, excited about being here. My kind of journey in in safety started, you know, over 30 years ago. I was uh, was in the Navy and uh, I was pilot background uh, flying aircraft. And and that experience was, you know, through that I was sent to safety school uh, for aviation safety. And that was kind of my beginning journey from there. I um, left the military, started uh, working for a commercial airline, um, also transferred those safety skills into the commercial airline space, and then ultimately um, found myself being able to work in the healthcare patient safety space. So bringing a lot of those same concepts that we have from aviation uh, and really in that training and education environment to actually healthcare organizations, especially uh, hospitals. And that kind of is not probably unusual in the sense that that this cross-industry or high-risk industry sort of models of safety and quality 
uh, have evolved from other high-risk industries like aviation, mm-hmm. also uh, nuclear power, and um, even the special forces from the military as well. So that kind of high-risk environment is certainly something we probably recognize now. But at the time you made that shift from aviation into healthcare, that was probably a pretty novel concept, was it not? I mean, you must have been right at the beginning. Yeah, we really were. I actually had a personal experience of patient safety in the care of my father, who suffered a, um, a serious safety event in care of his caregivers. And that event was sort of uh, an awakening to me about the need for uh, this uh, approach to safety and quality that involved high reliability principles that had originated in the aviation uh, industry. And that sort of kind of catapulted me into the space. And then I realized, you know, when I uh, started to collaborate with uh, first the uh, military health system, and they were really interested in thinking about how they could take some of the practices that they saw on the aviation side of the military and bring them over to the healthcare side of the military. And that was kind of the first nexus of, of actually making that leap. And you're right. I mean, it really was, you know, the Wild West at first mm-hmm. with that approach. And that was pretty much right after the Institute of Medicine at that time came out with their uh, seminal report on patient safety known as To Air is Human uh, right around 2000, 2001. I know that a lot of our listeners in the continuing medical education space will be familiar with To Air is Human, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you mentioned two things. One is bringing some of the safety practices from the military into healthcare? And the second is that concept of high reliability. What is that? And why should we be thinking about that in healthcare? So that leap into Eric's Human, Eric's Human talked about really the first line they brought in was the idea around uh, crew resource management or mm-hmm. its predecessor, which was called cockpit resource management. And so uh, this, or just CRM as we knew it in aviation, and, and they really believed that it was important that we could better understand or translate these, um, what we know to be non-technical skills. So it's not the actual uh, uh, flying of the aircraft. It's actually skills around decision-making, uh, communication, mm-hmm. leadership, uh, situation monitoring, those types of skills. In, in aviation, we found that those skills were the skills generally that were the causal factors of serious accidents. And since we're dealing with human performance, it just seemed likely that some of those same factors were involved in serious uh, patient safety events as well. Mm-hmm. And a couple with that, so, so CRM really was something that, that there was a, a thought process that we could, we could translate that for healthcare and fit it to purpose, if you will. So take the things that were relevant from that that body of research around CRM and bring it into another high-risk industry like healthcare. And along with that, the science that was developing around high-reliability organizations and White and Sutcliffe uh, were kind of at the forefront of that work along with James Reason, who was also mm-hmm. one of the leaders in the safety uh, management research. And in the Wyke and Sutcliffe work, 
it originated on the deck of the aircraft carrier. And the concept was how could we take work that's so risky and make it so safe? And that was the question. They approached that high reliability work. And what they learned was that there were really five key principles that they were able to discover from that work in high reliability. And it's those principles that were uh, the focus of some of the high reliability work in uh, healthcare as well. And so what are some of those principles? Well, uh, one is a preoccupation with failure, which actually seems um, sort of counterintuitive to the safety world. But it's this idea that uh, we're always uh, planning or expecting something to go wrong. Mm-hmm. So in high reliability organizations, we're, we're really uh, obsessed with thinking through what a contingency might be in case uh, plan A goes wrong. How are you going to be ready with a plan B or a plan C? Another one is uh, this commitment to resilience. So this ability for teams to snap back. So with the idea that we, and with human error, that we'll, we're always going to make mistakes. It's a matter of how we are able to manage those mistakes or those errors that uh, could prevent harm from reaching a patient. So th- those are some of those concepts, and there are several others that are, are very relevant uh, to also the any high-risk environment where the consequences for safety are so high. I love that phrase, commitment to resilience, and also kind of recognize that sense of having contingencies, contingency plans. I, you know, I was a, a trauma operating room nurse for several years. And so I kind of recognize some of what you're talking about in terms of, yeah, you always have to have this sense of what are your workarounds going to be if, you know, X, Y, or Z doesn't actually pan out. Yeah, it really was, Alex. I mean, you know, I think initially when we started thinking about safety management in healthcare coming from the aviation background, exactly what you just said was was really important. It's not just about uh, what we know as safety one, which is kind of those procedures, protocols, checklists, mm-hmm. uh, those, those types of hardwiring types of policies or protocols. It was also what you just said, it was the adaptability. And that's what we know as safety too. So there's flexibility and adaptability, the ability to manage uh, even things that we didn't expect as much as the things that we did anticipate. And that was the other side of, of high reliability is these organizations that were actually able to improvise and improvise in a safe manner uh, when needed. I guess I have a couple of questions here. In the work that you do, how much flexibility and adaptability do you see in healthcare workers? So I'll ask that question first, and then I'll, I'll come back to the second question. So I think that there's a tension between those two, and, and that's why I brought them up, is that if you think about it, uh, we can maybe see even the word workaround as uh, something bad instead of a uh, workaround potentially being something uh, that needs to happen. Uh, so the the idea is that uh, here we're really talking about the, the system, if you will. And some have said that uh, systems are designed, uh, perfectly designed to get the outcomes that you design them for. And so oftentimes what we know as the 
blunt end of, of system development, meaning sort of the, the management level or the design level of a system, um, doesn't equate or, or reach the sharp end about where care actually is delivered. And that it looks like it would always work that way. But at the sharp end, at the, at the care side, at the care team side or at the bed side, um, that actual system may not work in all cases and all, if you will, algorithms or patient conditions. And so that, that ability to be flexible and adaptable is important. And it was a really important principle of, of being a high reliability team. And so, so there was this concept of we had a healthcare team where they really what we knew as a high performing team or were they just a group of, of people that showed up at the same time or asynchronously to take care of the patient. Right. That's a, a great distinction to make. I know that um, certainly in my experience of, of working in trauma teams, sometimes it definitely felt like the latter. It's a bunch of people showing up a little bit willy nilly. <laughs> sometimes, you know, not everybody's on the same page all the time. And so that kind of leads me to my second question, which is about, about the team part. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do to create that sense of everyone in the team being on the same page? Yeah. So we call that concept, and this was what our first uh, programming effort, and I think one of our most successful so far to date with, uh, within this team safety management construct in healthcare is um, working with the military health system and the agency for healthcare research and quality, we developed um, a program based on all this uh, science teamwork uh, known as Team Steps. And the steps stand for strategies and tools to enhance performance and patient safety. And what Team Steps did was it started with the the concept of uh, who's on the team, which I think is first and foremost before you talk about the skills that high-performing teams are known for, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the team structure was really important. And first and foremost, at the top of the, if you will, troika of team is the patient and their family. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, in essence, is the key part. You know, as people will say, nothing uh, as a patient, nothing about me, without me. And so, so if you take that construct and then there's the core team, which is the team that actually does direct patient care. And then from there, there are other teams that could, could play into the care of that team and will play into that team. And, and knowing where you sit on the team and what role and responsibility you have on the team is absolutely crucial mm-hmm. um, to knowing how you need to sometimes lead and then other times how you need to support. And so that, that was really critical. And then from there, uh, the training that uh, came from that uh, sort of understanding of where I sit on the team and, and what my role is was skills and um, tools do I need to apply based on conditions or uh, safety situations or situations with patients that would uh, help to improve safety mm-hmm. and to help uh, improve collaboration, coordination, and most of all, communication which we knew from right. going into uh, this that communication errors were really, when you had Sentinel events, it was usually 70% of those Sentinel events had a root cause 
of a communication failure. And right. so again, communication was really important to the team, as was leadership, situation monitoring, and the final learnable teachable skill and team steps, which is known as mutual support, which is that uh, backup behavior that we need each and every day to help us when we can't see the things that others on the team can see or are able to, if you will, have our back, uh, especially in high risk, high consequence situations or even high stress situations with patients. Yeah, that having your back piece is key. I do want to ask, you know, about your process, about how you actually work with teams. But but before that, I just wanted to kind of flag up, you know, some of the work that I do involves interviewing physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers, as you know. And it's often pretty sad to me to hear that a lot of people don't feel like they actually are part of a team. Is that something you see, I guess, especially when you're first working with an organization? Yeah, and and the way we are able to, you talk about the process, the way we kind of see that without actually even uh, seeing the team Mm -hmm. is by analyzing the culture of safety data. Usually there's survey data around um, safety culture in organizations, and that's a really big uh, tip or cue to us whether teams are struggling because there's several dimensions of patient safety cultures including not only teamwork within units, but teamwork across units, which actually is where it's even harder to be a good team is when you're working with another unit and say you have a handoff of a patient. That's a very risky uh, sort of play if you don't have good teams uh, playing together. It'd be like fumbling the football in a sporting event, but with much worse consequences here with a patient uh, piece of patient information that's critical to their well-being moving from one unit to another. So, but I agree with you that a lot of times we can have a team of doctors, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a team of nurses, a team of respiratory therapists, but how do we uh, become a high reliability team? How do we become a teams of teams, basically, is what this will look at. How do we all get on the same page, which we know from our research means that you have a shared mental model. That the information is shared uh, openly across the patient care team, including the patient and their family. So I think that you're right. I think that comes out also in another dimension of culture known as communication openness. So how willing are we and open are we to be able to share information regardless of potential hierarchy or seniority or uh, professional specialty? So the teamwork we're talking about is multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary teamwork. So, you you know, you're looking at cultural safety data. What other kinds of indicators, you know, when you're starting to work with um, an organization or, or maybe a unit, and maybe you can say how you write that down, what other kind of indicators are you looking at to get that baseline sense of where the organization is uh, in terms of, thinking about and being receptive to improving teamwork. Right, right. And so I think there's also attitudes, teamwork attitudes. Mm -hmm. So for instance, how much do you value teamwork? Uh, I kind of take this story back from aviation, which is 
when you're trained as a pilot, the sort of capstone event for a pilot early in their career is, is called the solo, which is, is actually sort of, it's counterproductive in some ways in the development of pilots is that in some ways, yes, you have to operate independently, be able to, to know your profession, but your capstone is solo when in fact, rarely do you, except for single seat fighter aircraft, do you ever fly an aircraft by yourself? Right. Uh, there's always other support, uh, even not in the cockpit. Maybe it's a wingman, even in a single seat fighter aircraft like my son flies. So when I, when I think of that is oftentimes we've sort of set ourselves up in some ways uh, to not value teamwork. So understanding what strong beliefs you have in teamwork is is another uh, way that we, we can kind of understand where we sit. Do you, do you think teamwork is important or am I able to do all, all this on my own? Mm-hmm. I think another uh, area is patient experience data, data from things like HCAPs, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, patients talk about how um, their physicians and nurses uh, listen to them, communicate with them. If you're not communicating well with communication is a skill. It, it truly is a skill. And if you're not able to communicate well with your patients and, and families, it's likely that you're going to have difficulty communicating with your team members. And so that's another way. And then I think also that fits into that same mix of data is is really employee engagement. If you're not engaged or you know you dread coming to work, it's likely that you're you're also not really excited about team. You're maybe not resilient at this point. Maybe there's something else going on in the organization from uh, the goals of the organization, management, leadership that is preventing you from doing your best work. That's also an area where. It's, it's a kind of an indicator that potentially this an organization, in essence, has low readiness to be functioning as high-performing teams, and that they really are maybe just needing to improve their climate, work climate, mm-hmm. uh, before they start to dig into some of these tougher team skills and communication skills. So once you have kind of amassed all that, you know, baseline data, how do you start the process of you know, actually working with organizations, you know, figuring out whether they need to work on some more readiness or, or dive into really bolstering, uh, you know, a particular team or teams. Can you talk a little well, bit about your, your kind of process? Yeah, I think it's kind of a, a top down, bottom up. And if you think about the whole of this, it, it really is a large organizational change. And uh, it can start in different ways. Some organizations like the military decided they want to do this at scale. Mm-hmm. So this is how do we get all of our healthcare teams on the same page and working very closely together. And there's a reason maybe they have to do that more than other organizations because of the nature of how they deploy mm-hmm. and their teams are rarely intact. Like you all show up and ever have the same team. They're, they're usually formed teams so that they have to come together very quickly in a, in a, say, a combat environment and be able to perform at the highest level possible for that right. team with all sort of disparate uh, skill levels. And generally, military health teams are at least 10 to 15 years on average less experienced 
than, say, a civilian uh, healthcare team. And with that said, yeah, so it's a much different dynamic, but yet at the same time, I think it also has shown me that these teams seem to be a little bit more amenable to uh, trying things new and realizing their own limitations. I think once we get farther down in our careers, it might be a little harder to change some of our our beliefs and, and some of our perceptions sure. and the ways we do work. And so I think it really starts with um, a kind of that readiness piece, not only at the team level, but at the senior leadership level, because if this is a large change management uh, program, uh, we'll need senior leadership support resources for that. And then oftentimes, maybe uh, we've seen that an organization will start the process of of developing and improving the performance of their teams in their highest risk units like labor and delivery, Mm -hmm. uh, the operating room, ICU, and as you mentioned, the emergency theater. Mm -hmm. So, um, so those, those are great places where, where team steps had really uh, shown to have some of the best impacts of changing performance and improving uh, patient safety. From there, it's, it's really a traditional, kind of model of of training, which involves both uh, the didactic, the knowledge, but also the development of those skills. We've used things like we did in aviation. We started incorporating simulation into our practice, I think is very key. And then uh, the furthering that to the application environment is none of this really works unless you practice it on the job. So um, it's really getting someone to help you mentor, coach, and um, if you will, uh, help you see how your behaviors might be changing over time. So, and again, a, a lot of it's just like we know with sports teams, it's rehearse, rehearse, practice, practice. And the more you use these tools like briefings and huddles and debriefings, the more the teams start to become more cohesive, they coordinate better. And uh, they start to collaborate. And then, as you said, the communication really starts to improve, which, uh, again, is directly related to reduction in these patient safety, preventable patient safety events. Right. So practice, rehearsal, communication, support, mentorship. How long is a kind of typical process for you in terms of you know, transforming a, a team culture? Usually it, it really doesn't happen much quicker than a year. So mm-hmm. it, it really kind of takes a season, if you will. You know, a full mm-hmm. season of, of this sort of focused practice before a team really starts to hit their strides. And like any learning curve, you know, um, potentially people see those uh, taking time for briefs or checklists. They see it as actually taking more time. And they, you know, you get that dip of that learning curve initially, but then all it takes is one or two times that you're able to trap or mitigate or manage an error because of those events where people start to see the value and the stories from those uh, good catches come out from the teams. And it, it sort of creates its own little momentum from there or its own rapid cycle improvement. And the teams are constantly refining their quote unquote playbook, right? Mm-hmm. As to how they're going to do team and how they use the language of teams. 
differently than they had before. They have a common language that they start to use. That usually takes, you know, before that really starts to really hit their stride and they're starting to perform, uh, it starts at about a six-month level, but you really start to see it uh, start to kind of go in that hockey stick sort of approach out at about 12 months. And that's when you really start to see changes in the culture, changes in some of those uh, perceptions or attitudes, and uh, even um, those good catches or stories that show that teamwork is working uh, to prevent patient harm. And presumably you're, you're tracking hard data to see those kinds of shifts in the emergence of a common language, which presumably is an indicator of that shared mental model. Exactly. So uh, one of those is, you know, let's, let's just use, there's one of the tools, there's 15 tools and strategies and team steps that are developed uh, specifically for use at any given time. So one of those tools is called um, CUS, C-U-S. It stands for I'm concerned, I'm uncomfortable, this is a safety issue. Mm. That language is new language. I mean, you know, you're frustrated in a in an environment, you know, you might want to cuss, but this is a different kind of cuss. <laughs> this is the cuss of, of being able to advocate and assert a position because you potentially have seen an early warning sign with the patient. Uh, maybe it's uh, an oxygen level, uh, a blood pressure, a temperature. Uh, so those kinds of things, I have to get maybe the attention of my attending physician uh, by saying, you know, doctor, I'm concerned. And the doctor says, well, I'm, I'm not all that concerned, and maybe I need to go to the next level. I'm uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so it's – and it, eventually this might even be something I need to bring another consultant in and say, you know, I think if we if we keep down this path, we're going to end up in a safety issue. And so those are the – that kind of language is different. And if you see people start to use – that language even to say, I think this is a cost situation, it really helps them immediately say that something's changed. We need to look at the plan of care and maybe do something different than what we were doing before because this patient is desaturating, for instance. So interesting. You know, one of the things that's always struck me as, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, odd, (laughs) is that From my perspective within continuing medical education, I don't often see uh, synergistic programs or projects between continuing medical education and the kind of work that you're doing in safety management and performance improvement. And yet it seems to me that it's potentially such a fertile partnership. From your perspective, do you see much of that? You know, unfortunately, Alex, uh, we don't, we struggle for every, you know, CEU, CME, CNE, we, we struggle. Um, we, you know, with team steps, we ensure that we had, you know, continuing education credits, uh, applied to the, to the learning. Unfortunately, there's just so much, uh, training that goes on or education that is, uh, compliant in nature. Mm-hmm. And it's usually, it's either, from a regulatory standpoint, or it is something that is a technical requirement. Mm -hmm. And while I've said these are non-technical skills, unfortunately, they're essential to the safety of patients. And yet, you know, they sometimes don't get the attention that, um, you know, the crowded education field has for, you know, that 
to-do list that's right. needed every year to be done by uh, those frontline professionals. I will tell you, and again, a lot of that's just about uh, organizational commitment as well. Mm-hmm. And so in the military, this is a refresher requirement every year annually. Every single healthcare professional goes through after they've had initial training in uh, team steps, for instance, they are uh, required to do an annual refresher of these skills. Sometimes it's just done through a simple case study or simulation mm-hmm. where teams have a, an ability to debrief the case study and pick apart those areas of improvement that the teams could have or should have uh, done or even best practices that the teams exhibited. So good exemplars um, for them to potentially apply to practice with their patients in their team. Right. Okay. You've mentioned simulations a couple of times. I'm a member of our community emergency response team. So we, you know, we do simulations. What, what kind of simulations are you doing with team steps? Well, it's, you know, with simulation, again, it can be as simple as a, like we said, some sort of desktop, you know, case-based simulation or even a game, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a fun game called uh, Night at the ER, for instance, where, <laughs> where basically there's, you know, since you're emergency care, you would really have a lot of fun with that. But that whole idea of resource management that comes in to play as whether or not you're going to have the right people on the team at the right time with mm-hmm. the right patients is, is really important. And so all the way to uh, we use uh, story-based simulations. So we think the stories are rich uh, for learning, mm-hmm. uh, the power of story. Uh, so we use some story-based simulations where you have a story that is narrated. And from that story, uh, we can uh, learn you know, about a patient, about a situation that's unfolding, and how might we change that story by doing something different as it relates to our teamwork, our communication, or some practice that we would change or a protocol or a system change that could be made. Uh, those are more you know, known as those lower fidelity simulations, all the way to um, role plays you know, with uh, standardized patients. Mm-hmm. And, but with the focus of this, not just on maybe my diagnosis, but um, how I'm being uh, actually the center of care instead of maybe, you know, uh, being ignored when it comes to what's going on with my care and, and how important it is to communicate up to the high fidelity simulation where we, we have mannequins and we've used that in a way of maybe during an obstetric emergency where we need to move towards from a vaginal birth to a cesarean section. There's so much coordination that goes on between uh, multiple teams and that can only be practice. You you don't want to be the first time doing that for real. You want to have, just like with uh, pilots, they rarely uh, fly an airplane before being in a simulator Mm -hmm. and practice all of those different functions and skills before they let them take that million dollar jet up and go flying with it. Yes. No, that makes complete sense. I remember when I was a student nurse back in the 80s in the United Kingdom, we were supposed to be supernumerary, but of course we weren't. And there was definitely that sense of you're jumping into a very hot vat of oil, (laughs) you know, uh, without much support, flying solo before you're really equipped to, to do that. 
for sure. Actually, when you were talking about the emergency room there, you know, we all did a stint in the emergency room as student nurses and the, the medical officer of the emergency room at the time. In the UK, it's called accident and emergency. And mm-hmm. on really, really busy nights, he would stand at the, at the entrance and literally ask people if they were an accident or an emergency. Because inevitably, you know, you get people showing up on a, a Saturday afternoon who should really be going to primary care. <laughs> And mm-hmm. that was his way of uh, quality control, making sure that the people who ended up in casualty were actually the people who needed to be there. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, that's, uh, that's exactly one of those skill sets. We sort of think are intuitive, but they, uh, they can be taught. Uh, they're mm-hmm. learnable and teachable, like situation monitoring. Again, uh, there's you know great tools uh, to actually think about that in the sense of one such tool we have is called STEP. And uh, STEP is just probably what that consultant was using at the time, which is STEP stands for status. So thinking of the status of your your patient, the T is for the team, like how many team members do you have and where are they assigned? Are they in uh, kind of that fast track care where it's almost like primary care as opposed to emergency care? The E, the environment, where, where do you put them? How do you triage them? you have all the equipment that you need is is there a piece of equipment that's down or are one of your departments running slower than normal like the blood uh, bank for instance and then finally uh p uh the progress towards your goal Mm -hmm. how quickly are you seeing those patients and which are the ones you and delay based on their condition but that's just a great situation monitoring tool but think about that if you were a new nurse or a junior doctor, mm-hmm. being able to be taught something where you could actually step through, if you will, for no pun intended, right through how it, it feels to uh, be able to understand the situation and then know what to do about that after you have a good understanding and mm-hmm. it's shared amongst your team members. I, Steve, I love that. I love that you brought uh, that little story right back to a tool that people can use and and you're right you know he probably was engaged in that kind of process we just all thought it was some kind of delightful idiosyncrasy (laughs) (laughs) I'm mindful of our time I, I do want to kind of wrap up by asking you about some current personal work that you're doing you're you're always innovating you're always researching um, can you talk a little bit about the research that you're doing for um, your thesis? I sure will. Um, it's exciting. It's work that I started in aviation, but we we really believed that it was along some of these other high risk principles that it would be uh, potentially applicable to patient care setting. So uh, the concept is known as um, LOSA for Line Operation Safety Audit. And it, it started about 15 years ago in aviation, and it, it became a very methodical way that we went about uh, measuring the actions and behaviors of our cockpit crews uh, during normal operations. So just everyday operations, just things that went, went on in a routine way, and was to actually do direct observations of those practitioners. And um, that concept uh, it follows what's known as a threat and error management construct, which is a threat is anything external to the team that adds increased complexity. Mm-hmm. So it's very simple in thinking about that construct. 
a patient in a patient care setting, that patient condition could be a threat to the team, depending upon whether we know about it, understand it, and diagnose it. Next, we uh, the construct is based on errors, which we're familiar with in mm-hmm. human uh, condition. And then finally, these uh, other states known as undesired states. And undesired states are errors that are mismanaged by the team. And they, they are the closest we come to, say, a near miss before that mm-hmm. event becomes patient harm. And so we categorize the observations into these three elements threats, errors, and undesired states. And what that's been very successful in understanding, uh, say, and auditing a group of pilots. But we wondered whether we could do that and monitor a group of a healthcare team mm-hmm. in the same frame. And what value would that produce for us? And it's not only the sheer number of these threats, errors, and undesired states that are happening, but which ones of those are going unmanaged? Because it's, it's a measure of how well our programming is working with our teamwork, our CRM, our high reliability training to know whether, in fact, teams are catching and managing and trapping and mitigating these threats, errors, and undesired states. And so we did this with um, the crossover was with aeromedical evacuation teams on okay. aircraft that were transporting patients in the back of an aircraft in the military. And so it's a very exciting work. It appears as though uh, that there are a lot of similarities in these patterns of mistakes that crews make, whether they be taking care of patients or flying the airplane. And how in this construct, like we talked about the teams of teams, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, uh, there can be things that the pilots or the cockpit crew does or doesn't do that could create a threat to the aeromedical evacuation team. Just like something that the patient ward could do as far as slow to discharge patients that would impact an emergency care team that's trying to uh, move the patient from the ER to a patient bed on the ward. And so there's a lot of coordination that occurs between the two and and one can become a threat to the other uh, without ever knowing that it creates a safety threat to that other team. Mm -hmm. And so it's not only is it valuable to the team of record or the unit of measure, which is that aeromedical evacuation team, but it's also important to the system to understand how we could maybe improve our communication, our policies, Mm -hmm. our protocols, our training, uh, our culture, if you will, mm-hmm. to um, to actually be able to measure these. And now, you know, we can take these audits and at various points in time, it gives us a very specific um, roadmap for action about mm-hmm. how we can not only improve team performance, but we can actually change the system to, in fact, uh, be more hardwired for uh, safer care. So I'm really that, excited about that work. Yeah, that is really interesting. You know, and as you were talking about that, it was hard for me not to think about, you know, everything that's happened this year and COVID especially. It was hard to not think about that as as a kind of threat. Is that off base? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's exactly. You hit it nail on the head. We saw that even in the work we were doing this year, some of our observations were um, actually took place in COVID environments. Mm-hmm. And so not only could the threat, the patient having COVID, 
but the ability to have the proper isolation systems potentially on an aircraft for a patient who is COVID positive. And then what about uh, whether or not the rest of the crew members are following prescribed protocols around uh, wearing their face masks or, you know, social distancing. And it's, it's not so easy inside of an aircraft. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. again, as you can imagine, you could see that threat uh, play into that. And then just think of the distraction. If a pilot's now wearing a, a mask and not used to doing that, how distracting that might be caused them to make an error that they wouldn't have made because they've changed their whole uh, protocol in how they actually operate the aircraft because of the simple thing called the face mask, which wouldn't mean anything to an OR nurse, but it means everything to a pilot. Oh, right. Yes, because it's just, it's not part of their normal practice. It's completely new and it's, it's irritating and it's getting in the way. And it even, uh, if you will, we've seen even because much of communication is nonverbal. Right. So being yeah. able to see people actually speak, that's why I think some of the clear shielding uh, that's going on maybe uh, offers some real enhancement to communication messaging in the future. Oh, that makes total sense. Just one last question, Steve. You know, you're in a position to have a kind of 360 view of what's going on in healthcare at the moment. And we're talking at the end of 2020, you know, looking ahead to the next 12 months, what sort of things should educators be thinking about in terms of resources and tools that healthcare workers can use to, you know, just make their work a little easier? Yeah, I, I really think that, um, again, the move towards uh, virtual learning experiences is huge. You know, it's like we've all seen it. You know, we were, we were moving in that direction more. Right. But I think it, it has to be good quality learning, right? So experiences that people can get when they need them. Mm-hmm. So developing learning that can be just in time is going to be huge. I think beyond that, I think ability for teams to come together and support each other and really support this building back some of the resilience that is in uh, jeopardy right now. I think that's going to be a real need is to figure out how to that commitment to resilience is going to be important as a high, high reliability principle. Otherwise, I think we really do risk having more harm to patients as we continue to take you know, uh, withdrawals from our, our workforce in ways that they're not able to recover and be able to, to be resilient. And then I think finally is the last 12 months, I think training probably took a back seat. Mm-hmm. to the operational tempo of the organizations. And how are we going to restart that education element? If I'm a, a nurse educator in a hospital, I've probably been told, one, we don't have time uh, to train, number one, which is always a problem, but now even more so with the operational tempo. And then secondly, and finally, is the pressure on the training and education budget is going to occur because of this. I think it's going to uh, get us to start thinking about finding ways to unfortunately do more with less when it comes to the training dollars as well. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I actually was speaking to a nurse administrator last week, and one of the things that she talked about was, you know, I think they ran out of IV, don't even know what you call them, I've lost my words for that, but 
what she was saying was that the nurses were having to use, you know, a gravity system, which is what I trained with, but they didn't know how right. to use the gravity system and there was no mm-hmm. one to train them. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, so I'm, I'm sure there are lots of situations at the moment where people are having to, you know, get skilled in old skills and the collective memory of what those skills are is probably in short supply in a lot of places. Right. Or just like we saw, uh, we've seen this also with our, our professional skill set, our, our specialization. You know, we've become so specialized that all of a sudden we're asking now our hospitalists to maybe uh, help our internists yes. and so forth. Right. Because because we're just in a, a different environment right now. I might have always been an operating room nurse, but now I need to work in the ICU. Yeah. So it's really, uh, really kind of an eye opener to, you know, the kinds of different competencies that we're demanding of our workforce right now. And what will that mean to the future of education? I think that's probably a good place for us to end. Steve Powell, thank you so much for spending time with us today and uh, talking with the Right Medicine podcast listeners. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate the opportunity and always great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. I loved talking with Steve, not least because my dad was a payload dispatcher in the Air Force and some of the things Steve talked about reminded me of things my dad would talk about. Steve eloquently reminded us how this last year we've seen health professionals step up every single day to serve. As educators, we can build and provide the supports that healthcare teams need in order to manage the day-to-day workload in ways that prevent harm, optimise patient safety and reduce risk. But I also love talking with Steve because he embodies service. He began his path as a change agent in healthcare because of a negative experience that impacted his family and he really followed it through. The narrative thread that connects personal biography and history is strong for many of us who end up working in healthcare or education. I wonder what your story is. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Thanks for listening to Right Medicine.